Welcome to In Conversation With, a Hollywood Reporter podcast produced in partnership with Apple TV+. In each episode, we sit down with the creators and stars of some of TV's most compelling shows to hear more about what went into bringing these stories to life. I'm Michael O'Connell, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and for this episode, I'm speaking with Ryan White, the director and executive producer of Visible, out on television. The five-part documentary series traces LGBTQ plus representation in television through the dark ages of homophobic portrayals and fear-mongering talk show segments, through the HIV and AIDS crisis in the 80s to the 21st century, where the focus is now on broadening the fight for inclusion to transgender persons and people of color. Visible is White's second docuseries. He released Emmy-nominated The Keepers in 2017. His documentary features include The Case Against Eight, projects about Dr. Ruth and Serena Williams, and recent Sundance entrant Assassins. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Of course. Visible, a long gestating project. Can you tell me about how you came on board? Yeah, so I actually wasn't there at the beginning. This project's been in the works for over a decade. So two producers named David Bender and David Permit have been trying to get this project off the ground forever. And they, uh, they'd been working on it for a decade. They'd done a bunch of interviews, but they hadn't found a home or a distributor for the project. And before Apple TV Plus launched, uh, they met with them and Apple loved the idea, but wanted a documentary filmmaker to come in and uh, do most of the interviews and kind of shape the narrative of the series. So that's when myself and my producing partner, Jessica Hargrave, came on board. And Wilson Cruz, our executive producer, had also been on the project for many, many years with the, with David Bender and David Permit, predating my involvement. What's the sort of litmus test for you in terms of figuring out if the project is a right fit? Because you sit with this material for a really long time, and if it, it doesn't hold your interest, I imagine your job would become very tedious. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, you know, documentaries take years to make. So I'm very careful. I'm lucky to be in a position where I can pick and choose my projects at this point in my career, but I'm very careful about what I choose because I know I'm spending years on that project. And if I'm being completely honest, when I was first pitched this project, I said no to doing it because I thought from the outside, it looked um, almost like a clip show, almost like a survey of history, which there's there's brilliant documentaries that have done that past and documentary series that have done that in the past, but that's not really... Um, my interest as a documentary filmmaker, all of my previous films have really been about people, usually one person or a small group of people. And I love really embedding myself in people's lives and getting to know them while something is unfolding. And so upon first glance, this project looked a lot like, like more of a historical film. And the more I talk to Apple's producers about it, and the more I talk to Wilson and the two Davids about it, my take was if you guys allow me to do kind of real documentary storytelling, like allow each of these stories that I want to explore to have a beginning, middle and an end, almost like a, a series of short documentaries looking at the history of television and LGBTQ representation, then maybe I'm the right fit. And Apple said that's exactly what we're looking for. We're not looking for a clip show. We'll give you the real estate to do it. Make it as make it as long or as short as you want. And, and that's when I got involved. Duration is so interesting in documentary because I feel like the preferred vehicle, at least from the platform perspective in the last couple of years, has shifted from feature to series. What 
sort of conversations did you guys have between producers about what the length of of this project should be and 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 how the episodes should sort of be broken up? Well, I knew I knew if we did it as a feature that it would be uh, it would be short changing plenty of stories. And even having put it into five episodes, I hear on Twitter all the time, um, television shows or characters that we left out. So even I think it's five hours long, even in five hours, many people are disappointed. And I understand that because television is so intimate that, you know, someone that they loved or a show that they loved might not have been included or only included for a shot. And so we're looking at in our you know invisible we're looking at 70 plus years of television history and so i thought to try to whittle that down into a feature would just be unfair to a lot of these important parts of television history so i was lucky that apple never really gave me a mandate like you can only have four episodes or you can only have five episodes it kind of they were open to letting the story dictate the length and that kind of played out in the edit room. You know, it wasn't really near the, till the end of editing that, you know, we understood that this was going to be a five episode series instead of, you know, a different amount of episodes. But you're totally right. There's been a seismic shift, I would say, from documentary features to series over the last few years. And I think as a storyteller, I still love making films. You know, that's my... That's kind of, you know, that's why I'm a filmmaker. I became films because I saw saw films in the theater growing up. But to be able to have this new format where people are actually willing to tune in to documentaries and watch multiple hours of content is, I think, new for us as documentary filmmakers, but really exciting when you have the type of story that I think needs that. I feel like there's also been a real renewed interest in documentary just in the last couple of months, people consuming more content and being at home. Did you see sort of a second wave of response in the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I'm, ass- I'm assuming you're you're alluding to the Tiger King, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we definitely saw... Oh, no, I wasn't. I was just alluding to the fact that we're all captive and watching television. <laughs> well, I think t- the Tiger King phenomenon is fascinating, though. I yeah. think it hit at the perfect time, and I would, I would be surprised if there's ever been... A, you know, Netflix doesn't really release numbers, but I would be surprised if there's ever been a documentary that, that, that's been uh, consumed that much. But yeah, I definitely have seen a bubbling up since, since quarantine of... You know, our, our show came out February 14th, so it wasn't that long um, before reality set in about this pandemic. In fact, I was in New York promoting the series just at the end of February, beginning of March, right, as this was all settling in. So I've definitely seen a sort of surge. My only way to really measure that is social media responses, people people reaching out to me via email or Twitter or whatever. But I've seen a lot of it. And I think one of the thrilling things about Apple and a show like this is that it that it went international. So I see a lot of messages in languages I don't understand, but there's a lot of them <laughs> out there. I was surprised by how much ground you're really able to cover in this. What was the the research process like? Well, I can't take credit for that. You know, I had an amazing team of people who were watching down all of television history. I can't stress how much was watched to make this show. For instance, we had and a lot of young people, much younger than myself, who were watching these television shows, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I know we had one intern who watched 
all of Dynasty, like every every episode of Dynasty ever. And she had never even heard of Dynasty when she took on this project. And she watched it all down and picked very carefully the moments that we included in the series of, of one character named, named Stephen Carrington. So it was definitely a very involved process, lots of arguments in the edit room. But you know, we wanted to be as thorough as we could be. And we tried very carefully to uh, have a very diverse and intergenerational team. You know, our editors kind of span from very young 20s up to their 70s. So having oh, multiple wow. viewpoints at looking, you know, people ha- that themselves li- lived through different parts of television history, or I think for most of us, the most formative years, our television are probably in our adolescence. Uh, so making sure that they were all people of all different ages, that during their adolescence, they were impacted by, you know, different television television shows and could when we were having we had a group meetings once a week with probably 20 people in them where we would debate and argue and you know hash out what we were going to pursue so it was important to have i think as many perspectives as possible Wait, so in this group of 20 people like how many of them are producers how many are editors like what is the sort of quorum that you have um, I, I mean, th- th- it's probably broken up about half and half of, of, of a production team that oversaw production and research and archival, and then a team of editors and assistant editors. We had an amazing team of assistant editors that worked on this, you know, so I had, for instance, one non-binary assistant editor who's in their 20s who was watching a lot of this footage. It was fascinating to watch young people go back and watch old television. So certain things, we we kind of coined this term in the edit room called problematic progress, where, <laughs> you know, my, my non-binary editor that's probably 22 would look at a show like Soap starring Billy Crystal, which is seen as groundbreaking when it comes to LGBTQ representation. And to our editor in her 70s was a groundbreaking show, but our non-binary editor was looking at this from a much more, you know, current lens and saying how offensive and insulting that that show was. So I felt like we were we were having these arguments in a in a really um positive way so that we could always frame that those shows in understanding um the historical context. So even if those shows were would be looked at now as totally offensive to understand the problematic progress that people had to make these mistakes um, to force representation on television and that television has had to continually learn from those mistakes as like just like building blocks. Yeah, that's sort of the perfect term for it. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I mean, so much of this stuff predates you. What were you sort of most surprised by or shocked in seeing some of this stuff from the, the 60s and 50s? Yeah. I mean, the early episodes to me are the most revealing or they were the most exciting to make because, you know, episode four picks up in the 90s and then episode five is more modern day television. So all things that either I grew up on or have known about being in the business for the most part. But the first three episodes take place from the 50s through the 80s. And those were, you know, eras uh, you know, I was born in 1981. So they were eras where I wasn't around for, or I was too young to be watching. And so 
to go back and watch something, I mean, I could throw out a million examples, but one that always comes to mind are the talk shows of the 50s and 60s, where you have to remember there were only three networks at that time. And so tens of millions of people were tuning in to each one of these shows and to watch talk shows with supposed experts, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, anthropologists, going on these talk shows and talking about being gay as a mental illness or saying uh, the cure for it is a dad going out and throwing a baseball with his son or to take your daughter to more ballet, you start to realize the horrible impact that this had on LGBTQ children who are now our elders. You know, we have Tim Gunn in the series talking about how watching the, the Army McCarthy hearings, which is the first time the word homosexual is ever said on television in the 1950s, how that stirred up so much homophobia in his home, specifically with his father, who was an FBI agent, who was very angry at gay people and sensing that his son might be that. So watching that footage for, uh, you know, in black and white from the very early days of television for me was really jaw dropping. And also the absence of television. You know, one thing that I would have never thought going into this project, Stonewall wasn't covered by television. You know, as a as a queer person growing up and, you know, trying to know my history, I, I, I hear about Stonewall all the time and would have just assumed that it was a news story by covered covered by television. And we have many activists in this in our series pointing out that that was a huge failure of television to not cover um, that civil rights moment for the LGBTQ movement. What were some of the things that were filmed and referenced in interviews that were just really hard to find? Oh, let me think about this. I mean, there was a lot. Uh, th- those those talk shows of the early days were really hard to find. Often we would often we would read about something in books. There's been, you know, one of our consulting producers is a guy named Stephen Capsudo who wrote wrote a great book called Alternate Channels um, about the history of of LGBTQ representation on television. And often we would read about these things, but not know how to find them. So we we hired an incredible archival team that searched high and low to find all of these nuggets that, you know, in many cases had gone missing, um, especially like anything before anything before television was digital, like even even local news from the 80s and 90s, even AIDS coverage can be like very hard to find because it was archived on actual tapes. So often we had our team going into, you know, local networks or working with local archivists to find a lot of that footage that, you know, probably hadn't been seen since it aired on television. How does the scope of these teams and like the amount of people you're working with compare to a feature that's just sort of focused on on one one subject? Well, this this was a much bigger team than I normally work with. Even on set, you know, we are we're we're interviewing you know the most a list of celebrities. You know, we sat down with Oprah and Ellen. So you don't, you know, like normally my operation as a documentary filmmaker is keep it as small as possible. Even when I've worked with celebrities, you know, I've made films about Serena Williams. I made a film about Dr. Ruth. But even when I with, was with them, it was often just myself with a camera or one cameraman with me and at most a sound person. But this was a different scope, both in, both shooting and post-production. And we were trying to make it fast. You know, we're the first 
documentary series uh, to come out on Apple TV Plus, and we wanted to to come out soon after the launch. And so, you know, it was probably the fastest I've ever made a documentary, and especially a documentary series of of this scope, trying to cover you know seventy or eighty years of footage. Wait, what was the actual turnaround? I think I think it was about a year that I was on it. You know, like I said, it was a decade as a labor of love, but. And a year in a documentary is a very short lifespan. You know, I've, I've, I've made one documentary that took six years. So to do that necessitated a big team. And we're lucky that Apple gave us the resources to do that. How many interviews did you do over the course of that year? I think it's about 100. Yeah, about, about 30 I inherited from David Permit and David Bender. So you'll see some interviews in the series that look older, like... Mm-hmm. like uh, Hal Holbrook, who was the star of That Certain Summer, one of the first television movies, I think 1972 or 1973, his interview is over a decade ago that we include in the series. Um, So I inherited about 30, and I think I did about 70 or 75 on my own. Who was sort of the the toughest to book or the biggest get for you? Well, it's funny, you know, I'd, I'd worked on documentaries where I'm embedded in a celebrity's life, but I'd never worked on a documentary where you're trying to just get a celebrity for an hour. And so it was a huge puzzle because it's hard to get, it's understandably hard to get these people to sit down with you and take the time out of their busy schedules unless they know that it's going to become something. So, you know, it was like, it was constantly this like, like push and pull of being able to prove to people that enough people were on board for them to then say yes, you know? So, and what was really interesting too was, you know, television wasn't ending. Like as we were finishing it, television was still airing, obviously. And so I think our last interview is Ryan O'Connell from Special because it had just started streaming on Netflix as we were wrapping production. And one of my producers, Connor Fetting-Smith, said, there's a, this amazing new show on Netflix. It really pushes the boundaries of representation. Maybe we should talk to the creator of it. And we got Ryan in at the very, very last second to be able to include in the series You know, and there's been a lot of television since we locked our series that I wish we could have included that that I think has been really impactful. It's kind of wild how much has happened in the last couple of years. And you really see that in the last episode. How did you decide to end it knowing that it was very much like a moving train? Yeah, I it's it was hard to end it and I really don't see visible as having an ending um because television is going to continue unfold and it's going to continue to make mistakes and it's going to continue to also spur progress and we've seen some incredible shows over the last few years of course Pose is probably the most seminal but you know also shows like Special or Vita, that are really pushing the boundaries of representation. And so I don't see visible as really ending. You know, in fact, I think it could be added to for forever, as long as television exists. You know, it was kind of, the ending is kind of like a snapshot into time of where we ended. But I don't, I don't, I, I see it more as like an, an ellipsis than a period. No, that makes sense. With the interviews, was there anyone who you really wanted and you just didn't get? We got 
almost everyone. I would I and I have to give credit to our two executive producers, Wilson Cruz and Wanda Sykes. When we had both of them on board, they called on so many favors from their friends and yeah. they are beloved. Like they were the they were the two perfect executive producers. Because people fucking love both of them. I didn't know that going into this. I loved them, but like people in their world love them. And so they and they're both they're both really relentless in a way like they would send follow up emails and follow up emails. I remember um, sitting down with Janet Mock in New York, who to me was like a really big deal to get into this series. And she was so busy, you know, she's, she's such an it girl of Hollywood right now. Multi-hyphenate. Yeah. And it was so hard when her schedule, and I remember meeting her at the interview and I said like, and she had just come from a photo shoot from, you know, the writer's room. And then it was an evening interview. And I said like, thank you so much for making the time to do this. And she said anything for Wilson, like how could I not do this for Wilson? And so the amazing slate that we were able to get in our series, I think, is attributable to them. I think the one person I really would have loved to interview that we that we couldn't figure out in the end was was RuPaul. So uh, Drag Race, of course, is a part of our series, but we don't we don't have an interview with Ru in it, which is a bummer. I'm assuming you booked Dr. Ruth. <laughs> I did book Dr. Ruth. She still hasn't seen it because she doesn't have streaming platforms. So she keeps uh, asking me to send it to her on DVD, which I think would violate every contract that I signed with Apple. So I think when the pandemic is over, I will figure out how to take a laptop to her house and show it to her. <laughs> <laughs> Another producer on the project is obviously your your producing partner, Jessica Hargrave. Can you tell me a bit about your dynamic and, and your collaboration? Because this is the fifth or sixth thing you've done together. Well, it's not it's not my fifth or sixth project with Jessica Hargrave. It's probably like my 50th because we go back to fourth grade. So we've been making films since we were nine <laughs> years old together. In fact, my mom's pandemic project has been going back through old VHS tapes and my birthday present to hers. I'm going to digitize them for her. And she just told me she found the first film that Jess and I made together in, in fifth grade. So Jess and I have been best friends since we were little kids. And now we're producing partners and business partners. And so, you know, she's worked on every project that I've made and it allows me, you know, I'm making multiple projects. I'm directing multiple projects at once. And so for those projects to be safely in Jess's hands is what allows me to go out into the world. You know, I was making a film called Assassins uh, in Malaysia about North Korea, a uh, North Korean assassination while I was making Visible. And a great example of that was I had to go to Malaysia to shoot. And wh while I was traveling there, which it takes 30 hours to go to Malaysia, Oprah booked her interview and so I had to fly to Malaysia. I was on the ground in Malaysia for 12 hours shooting the trial that I was following there and then had to get back on two flights, take 30 hours. And the morning I landed, I had to go in and interview Oprah. And so having a producing partner like Jess, where I am, I mean, I'm literally unreachable. I'm on international flights and knowing that I will land in Los Angeles and everything will be prepared um, is key to me. And also making a series like this, I mean, Jess is, Jess is straight, but, but she grew up with a gay best friend. Um, and so I know 
our relationship and the impact that television had on us being, you know, part of the MTV era, like the real world era and my so-called life era. You know, I hope I hope this isn't a series that just queer people are going to tune into. I hope straight people are going to tune into it, too, because I think many of them had had the same impact of seeing of having their eyes open through representation on television or understanding. You know, I've heard Jess say in many Q&A's that um, Ricky Vasquez, who's Wilson Cruz's character on the on my so-called life taught her so much about having a gay best friend or a potential gay best friend who might come out to her one day. Back to problematic progress. What were some of like the touchstones of your youth that looking back on them maybe made you cringe a little bit? Well, my my first memories of LGBTQ representation, much like many of my interviewees who are about my age, like Janet Mock, uh, who I think is a few years younger than me, is talk shows of of the 90s you know like the 80s i remember i remember aids coverage of course and i remember be- being very afraid that that was my future and that this was going to be a death sentence but i don't really have a television moment um from the 80s that i remember but definitely talk shows of the early 90s you know i had a I had a single mom at that point a working single mom so i was coming home you know, after school in fourth or fifth grade and turning on the television and watching the talk shows that aired at, you know, 3.30, 4 p.m. And so getting to look at that era, like uh, Donahue, Oprah, which I think are are good examples of talk show hosts in many ways that that learned how to handle this. And then the really kind of destructive ones like Mari Povich or Jerry Springer, you know, and 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 one that really sticks out for me is is Ricky Lake. Um, I used to love watching that show. And I feel like I don't know what it was about Ricky that made me feel like she was always on the side of the LGBTQ people. I mean, her show was very sensational and it did create confrontations. But I remember thinking like, Ricky always loved the gay person on stage. And I remember loving that about her. And so those were, you know, and then in in our series, we look at probably the most extremely destructive example of that was the murder that resulted from the Jenny Jones episode with the the secret crush where, you know, a straight man found out that his secret crush on on television was a gay man and he ended up murdering, you know, these were real people. He ended up murdering that person a few days later when they went back to their hometown. And I remember that very well when I, when I was a teenager and it having totally a chilling effect on me and thinking, you know, I will, I will never come out because look what happens to gay people. It's horrifying and it's crazy to think that producers of that show just were like, oh, this is a great idea. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I feel a little bad for Jenny Jones. You know, she didn't participate in our series, but the idea that she's gone down in history for that, where everyone was doing it. And I remember Jenny Jones. I mean, I'm, I haven't watched that show in forever. I remember her as being very sweet and very likable and not, not, Re- not exploiting people as much as some of the other talk show hosts, but she, you know she's gone down in history because of that that horrible incident, which should not be forgotten. 
But you know that was happening all over television. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that wasn't that wasn't a remarkable episode. That was what was on every station. If you turned around, were those types of things, and probably still are on some of those talk shows. You know, and for trans people especially, you know, every trans person we interviewed pointed out talk shows from the 90s as being like one of the most glaring examples of transphobia. We have one example in our series of Maury Povich uh, bringing all these women on stage and the the kind of game is guess who's a real woman and and a fake woman, you know, and so everything, everything was a joke at the expense of a trans person. And I can't imagine growing up as a trans kid and what that that's all you have on television are those representations where your life is a joke to people. Oh yeah. And it went on well into this century. It's crazy. Two years down the road, if you were to be able to add another hour to this optimistically, what story do you think that you would tell and what it would focus on? Oh, that's a good question. You know, like I think our series gets a lot of attention because of the the famous faces that are in it. You know, there's a hundred people in our series and many of them are some of the most famous people in the world. And they've done incredibly groundbreaking things on television. But I feel like there's so much more progress to be made um, in the television industry behind the camera, but also, you know, in the, in the offices or suites of television, the decision makers. And so I hope if I were to ever add to television that it would be, you know, that it would be an addition of authentic, like queer people, LGBTQ creators, decision makers getting to tell their own stories. I think for so long, and we see this with all minorities represented on television, that it was, you know, straight white cis people who in many many of those cases, those straight white cis people were very brave and including LGBTQ characters. But uh, to finally have, I mean, Pose is a perfect example to have to have someone like Janet getting to tell the story of her own people, I think is truly groundbreaking. And we need a lot more of that. We're not there yet. Like, and so I definitely don't want visible to be seen as like a pat on the back or like we've reached the finish line. I want it to be seen as kind of a, a call to action of celebrating all the moments where that progress has been has been achieved, but also reminding people, you know, we're not there yet, or we can always move backwards, which we've seen time and time again. Yes, that is the danger. Um, and this is a good reminder uh, to not let that happen. <laughs> Before I let you go, we're going to do a lightning round. Oh, no. It's painless, I swear. If you had to quarantine, I feel like I know the answer to this. If you had to quarantine with... Anyone from Visible, either a collaborator or a subject, who would it be? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, that's very hard to pick. But I I have not watched a lot of television over the last 20 years, admittedly. So I was probably the wrong filmmaker <laughs> to make this series. <laughs> it was it was a lot of learning for me. And, and so Tim Gunn, I didn't okay. realize the, the importance of Tim Gunn until... He sat in front of me. Well, actually, it was before he sat in front of me. And the makeup artist and the hairstylist realized that they were going to be doing Tim Gunn. And they started going crazy about how he was an American treasure. And then I sat down with Tim Gunn for two hours interviewing him. And it's one of like the most special 
moments of my entire filmmaking career. So, and I have not seen him since. And so if I could be with him during quarantine, I just feel like there are so, you know, he reminds me of Dr. Ruth in the sense that they got famous so later in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got famous around the same age as Dr. Ruth, I believe in his 50s. And so he's so grounded and has such a refreshing perspective on the world of television and fame and celebrity that I wish I could spend every day with Tim Gunn. So quarantine would be the perfect opportunity. Okay. Do you have like one cultural recommendation to share with the world from the last two months, be it a show you've watched, a movie, a book, a podcast? What sort of like kept you going? Oh my God. Well, well, specifically with Visible, I watched the show called Feel Good on Netflix starring Mae Martin. Oh, Um, yeah. And... I had to message her right away. She's she's a lesbian stand-up comedian, but it's really a, a I, th- I think it's going to have future seasons, but it's really one season on Netflix and it's kind of a drama comedy. And I had to email her right away and be like, I wish I could have included you in this series. I wish your show had come out six months earlier because watching that show, I devoured it in one night, and I think she's such a refreshing voice. And I think she is someone that would not have had a television show, you know, even five years ago. So I think she's someone that's really emblematic of, like, you know, if we keep pushing these boundaries, then these brilliant storytellers will get to tell their own stories. So I, I, I hope everyone watches her show. Okay. And to end things on a, a positive note... What's one way your life has improved while you've sort of slowed down and been stuck at home? Well, my dog fucking loves it. Because, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, my, my job is I'm on the road more than half of the year. So this is very, I am incredibly stir crazy in this world. And, you, you know, it, often it's bouncing, you know, from international country to international country. So this has given me the opportunity to... And like I said, I've 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 been so I feel like I've been so uh, obsessed with all of the projects I've worked on over the last, you know, my career, I think is 15, 16 years now that I haven't really had the time to sit down and watch a lot of stuff. So I've been rewatching a lot of stuff or watching stuff for the first time. I'm on season four of Mad Men right now and I could not be, I've never watched Mad Men. Oh, wow. And so like as a storyteller, getting to getting this time off to get to watch other brilliant storytellers stuff, like I'm like such a loser texting everyone about Mad Men episodes right now. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that, that happened, you know, seven or eight years ago. It's a good episode, Ryan. It's emotional. Uh, and so getting getting to slow down in that type of way has been not just fun, but re- like really creatively rewarding, I think. Nice. Ryan White, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out Visible out on television on Apple TV Plus. And join us next week when we'll be speaking with talent from another Apple TV Plus series. 